The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. You'll open your Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 1. We're going to look at the providence of God today. Ezra chapter 1. You know, in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Micah prophesied that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But if you fast forward time to Christ's birth, you know that the couple that God chose to be Jesus' parents, Mary, his mother, Joseph, his earthly guardian, they didn't live in Bethlehem. So we've got a problem. If you know the story, God worked it all out, didn't he? At just the right time, it just so happened that the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree for his subjects to travel to their ancestral home to be registered. And since Joseph's ancestral home was Bethlehem, he and Mary traveled there. And it just so happened that while they were in Bethlehem, Jesus was born there. Isn't that neat how that all worked out? If you aren't amazed at God's sovereignty and His providence and something like that, I really don't know what to tell you. God is so strong that He can mold the decrees of kings to fulfill prophecy, and yet He is so gentle that He can stir the hearts of individual people for His glory, for them to serve Him like Mary and Joseph or you and me if we'll trust Him and obey Him. I hope that we're encouraged this morning as we look at Ezra chapter 1 and we're reminded that God is provident both globally but also personally. We'll see that today, but before we jump into Ezra 1, let me just give a very quick background to sort of set the context because we are just jumping into an Old Testament passage here. In 606 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon he took the first wave of Jewish people captive. After that attack in Judea, there were two more waves, two more attacks on Judea that culminated with the city of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. We know from biblical prophecy and from, from history that God was using Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against the Jews for their failure to keep their end of the covenant. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar was stronger than God. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar's gods were stronger than Yahweh, the true God. But Yahweh was providentially using Nebuchadnezzar to discipline the Jews. But we also know that this discipline would not last forever. After 70 years, God promised to bring them back. And so when we open the book of Ezra, it's that time. It's been 70 years of, Jew, of the Jews being in captivity in Babylon. So let's read the first four verses now of Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, 
May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. We'll stop there for a, for a minute. Verse 1 begins with the phrase that this happened in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And you're probably thinking, Brother Matt, you just told us King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took the Jews captive. So, so what gives? Nebuchadnezzar did. But remember, 70 years have now passed. Not only has Nebuchadnezzar passed away, but his empire has gone now too. Babylon was strongest under, under Nebuchadnezzar, but eventually the Medo-Persian empire took over Babylon. That was also prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah. In fact, there were certain prophecies of those two men that mentioned Cyrus by name even before he was born. Can God do that? <laughs> Absolutely. Just as God used Nebuchadnezzar, he is going to use Cyrus. But the way God used these two kings were very different from one another. We know from Nebuchadnezzar, he was this rod of discipline. He did take the Jewish people captive. He brought them to Babylon to build up his own kingdom and left Judea pretty much in ruins. There were still people living there, but it wasn't like it was beforehand. And that was part of God's judgment. But Cyrus, on the other hand, was different than Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus was known as a liberator. He actually allowed multiple people groups to return back to their homeland and God would use that uh, from King Cyrus to bring the Jews back to the promised land. If you're wondering how God can use these two kings in such vastly different ways, let me read a proverb to you. Proverbs 21.1 states, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's called sovereignty. This is God's world. And he's ultimately in control. That doesn't mean that men don't have free will or that we don't get to make decisions. It's not fatalism. But if God needs an earthly king to make a decree at the right time for his will to be accomplished, he can make that happen. We saw that with the intro to the sermon and Caesar Augustus making that decree for Mary and Joseph to be in Bethlehem at just the right time. And he does the same thing here with Cyrus. And notice in verse 1 the language used here. I, lo I love it. Um, Ezra writes that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Ezra's worldview is a godly one. I think a secular, a secular historian would look at this decree from Cyrus as just something that maybe he decided to do, maybe some wise men in his council, uh, you know, counseled him to do, that this would promote a lot of goodwill. If you let some people return home, they're still going to pay taxes to you, but boy, they're going to be loyal to you because of that, that kindness and that mercy, and it'll expand your territory with loyal followers. And maybe Cyrus had some of those thoughts. He's a politician. But Ezra does not interpret these events from a secular standpoint. His worldview is godly, and he understands that behind Cyrus's decree is the providence of God, because God would use that decree to fulfill a prophecy. The specific prophecy that he mentions about Jeremiah here is from Jeremiah 29.10, which says this, For thus says the Lord, 
when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And God did exactly that with the man he predicted to use to do it as well. And so the Jews are now going to be allowed to come back to their homeland. And if you, if you look at the decree in verse 2, the words that Cyrus uses, does it almost sound like a true believer is speaking this? Look at some of the things that he says. Um, he uses the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. In verse 2, uh, you see he begins with the Lord. And if your English translation has the word Lord in all capital letters, you know that that indicates this is Yahweh. So he uses that name for God. And then the next thing he says about God is that he's the God of heaven. This is a really interesting phrase or, or title for God that if you look through the Old Testament, it seems that the Jews developed this phrase while they were in captivity because it's really concentrated in some of those books concerning their captivity. So the thought is maybe that as they are now outside of Israel in regions that serve different gods, they're going to refer to their God as the God of heaven. You may have a God here. Ours is the God of heaven. And Cyrus uses that title here in his, his decree as well. He also appears to be aware that God gave him these kingdoms. He seems to recognize God's authority, right? In the, in the middle of the verse, he said that the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. It sounds like a man who, who knows the Lord. Sounds like the words a true believer would say, but Cyrus is not a true believer. I can give you some, some reasons why, but he's a true politician. History indicates that King Cyrus made other very similar proclamations with other people groups and with their gods as well. I mentioned earlier that different from Nebuchadnezzar who took people captive, Cyrus was a liberator. He set people free, so to speak. And so people love Cyrus. And when he would make a decree to allow people to go back to their homeland and worship their god, he would say very similar things about that group's God as well. So this is probably not a genuine heart. Now, I don't know his heart for sure, but knowing that he did that with everybody else, it sure seems like he just did that to make the people happy and to you know, foster some goodwill. The things he said here are true, but I don't know how much he truly believed that to the exclusion of all other gods and things like that. So this is a polytheistic pagan king, someone who thought multiple gods existed, each god probably having a, a territory. Notice how many times in verse 2 and 3 he specifically mentions God being the God of Israel or the God in Jerusalem or the God in Ju uh, Judea. He keeps bringing up those regions as a very pagan thing where they felt like gods had territory. I mentioned here before the whole universe is God's territory. He, it's all his territory. But Cyrus is probably thinking like a polytheistic pagan. And yet, even though he is this pagan king, God is still using him to accomplish his will. That's incredible. That's providence. One Puritan preacher named John Watson once said, God can make a straight stroke with a crooked stick. <laughs> and then another commentator said, that's what he did with Cyrus. He's probably not a true believer, but God can still use his edicts any way he sees fit. He did the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar to punish the people. 
And now he's doing a similar thing with Cyrus to restore the people. We read in Daniel just a few moments ago earlier in the service that God rules the kingdom of men. God's in control. And if you look at this edict a little bit more, it's interesting to me that Cyrus does not command every Jew to go back to the promised land. It's more of an allowance, I guess we would say. He, he lets them go back if they would decide. They're not going to be forced, though. It's a decision that these Jewish families have to make on their own. And I'm going to mention in just a minute that the ones who do not make this decision, that the ones who stayed in Babylon, they're not necessarily wrong for staying. We'll talk a little bit more that talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But there is an application I think we can make here about serving God with this decree and the fact that Cyrus didn't force them to return. Nobody can force you to serve God. You have to decide to do that for yourself. Now I know sometimes children or, or teenagers, um, you may not have much say in the matter if you're going to church or not. Your parents are going, so you're going. There's going to come a day where you have to decide. You have to make a decision. Nobody's going to force you. Nobody's going to make you. It's a famous phrase that, that people say often, forced religion is no religion anyway. And so for these Jews who had to make this decision, they weren't going to be forced. And this was going to be a difficult decision because returning to Jerusalem was not something to be taken lightly. This was not going to be a fun family road trip where you stop off at a few national parks and some amusement parks and buy some souvenirs and you go back home. These people had lived in Babylon for 70-ish years. For anyone under the age of 70, Judah, Jerusalem, the temple, those were stories. They had never seen those things. They didn't perhaps feel a pull to that land. They, they, didn't, they weren't born there. They didn't grow up there. They're likely living a pretty comfortable life in Babylon or the surrounding areas. The journey from these areas back to Jerusalem would have covered about 900 miles. In that time, with the way they had to travel in caravans, mostly on foot and on some, some animals, that would have been about a four-month journey. Four months. And then once you finally get to Jerusalem after a long, difficult journey, there's nothing there for you. The walls turn down. The temple is gone. The city's destroyed. Then the work starts. After this four-month journey, we got to get to work building homes and, and rebuilding the wall and the temple. And it took a while to do that, if you know the, the history of the Jews. My point is this was not going to be something easy. You've heard the expression, if it was easy... Everybody would do it. Sometimes God doesn't give us easy tasks. Sometimes God gives us difficult things. David didn't step out to the battlefield to fight somebody smaller than him, did he? He stepped out there against a Goliath, the largest man in Scripture. There's a very famous devotional book written by a man named Oswald Chambers. It's called My Utmost for His Highest and one thing he says in this devotional book is, thank God he gives us difficult things to do. Why does God do that, though? Why does he give us challenges instead of easy things? A lot of reasons. He wants us to grow. 
He wants our faith to be tested so that endurance can be produced. He wants us to mature. He wants us to rely on Him more. He wants to show what He can do through us. All of those sorts of things. So think about that for these Jews who would voluntarily return to Jerusalem. It would be something difficult and challenging, but it would show a great deal of sacrifice, a great deal of faith and courage and work ethic and love for the Lord. And God would receive a lot of glory because of it. This wasn't something they could be forced into doing by an earthly king. Just like you cannot be forced into serving God, you've got to make that decision. I mentioned that I'll, in a minute, I'll talk about those who did not go. I'll kind of mention this for a minute, though. They, uh, the group that stays, they are not some sorry group of people who don't love the Lord and are unfit to serve. But these people that did go back, there's some sacrifice on their behalf. This was a challenge. If you notice in, these, in this decree, in verse 4 specifically, Cyrus does decree to the ones that stay that they are encouraged to help, help the ones that are going back with free will offerings and with other things as well. So just because you decided we're going to stay in Babylon doesn't mean you don't have a job to do as well. So let's look at verse 5 and 6 now and kind of continue the story. Verse 5 and 6, we read, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Why did some Jews return and some Jews stay? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. God stirred the spirit of some people. It's interesting, this is the same word for stirred. This is the same word that was used in verse 1 about God stirring the heart or the spirit of King Cyrus as well. I think in our terminology, we would say this is conviction. That's the word we would use to describe that. The, the word for stirred here, it has the idea of to awaken, to stir, to agitate, even to disturb or to set in motion. And it's used sometimes in the Old Testament in a very meaningful way, just like this chapter where God is the one, maybe we would say behind the scenes, but God is the one who is stirring the heart. God's the one agitating the spirit. He's the one convicting. God's good at conviction. And so here in Ezra 1, it is awesome to me that while God is convicting the most powerful man in the world to make these vast global decrees... He's also working on the hearts of individual people to convict them to uproot their entire family and move 900 miles away. Isn't that awesome? When God's working on a global scale, He's still working personally with you. And that's, that's encouraging. These people were moved to return. Ultimately, they would rebuild the temple. It would take them a while, but returning to Jerusalem meant that they would rebuild the temple and reinstitute that true worship there. Let's read verse 7 through 11 because it sets up for that, but we'll come back and talk more about verse 5 and 6. Notice in verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. 
Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. And then verse 11, all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Isn't it amazing that even the temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar carried away and put into the temple of false gods were sort of reclaimed, gathered back up, and Cyrus said, you need to take these back home for the temple of your God. That's fascinating. So God burdened Cyrus to make this decree, to allow the people to return, even to give them help with this and he placed this burden on the hearts of the Jews who returned. And they went back. I think, a, I think a fair question would be, was there anyone who fought this conviction and stayed behind? I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. It does say in verse 5 that everyone whose spirit God stirred uh, went, went up. So I would have no problem saying that, that everybody who was stirred did go. But we know how people are as well. This definitely indicates to us, though, that not every Jewish person was stirred up by God. God didn't convict every single one of them to return. But that didn't mean they were less than the people that did return. That didn't mean that those people couldn't serve God. They were encouraged to help those people that were traveling back with gifts, with offering, and all sorts of those things. Their support would aid the ones who were returning. If you look in verse 6, there's a word early in the verse that ESV translates as aided. It comes from a word that means to make strong. You, your translation may use the word strengthened. The people who didn't go strengthened the people who did. And that's awesome. And there's a couple applications that we can take from this in Ezra chapter 1. First, and hopefully pretty obviously, if God burdens you to do something challenging, and it may be difficult, but if God's convicting you to do it, do it. If God's calling you to preach, answer it. If God's burdening your heart to be a missionary, go. Whatever it may be, if God's stirring you to do that, don't quench that. You follow God. Also understand, though, that if He's stirring you to do something challenging or difficult, it's not because of how good you are. Don't get the big head. I believe it was Paul who said, not many wise were called. If He stirs you to do something, it's more likely because of how little you are. Because he gets the glory. But the flip side, if you haven't felt a burden or a conviction for something quote-unquote big like that, if we can use that terminology, it doesn't mean you're less in God's work at all. God doesn't stir everyone to be a teacher or a pastor or a missionary. He didn't stir every Jew to return to the promised land. But he could still use those that were staying to be a good witness in that territory. 
They had contact with people that the other Jews wouldn't have contact with because they're 900 miles away now. They could also be a great source of strength and encouragement by supporting those who were returning. So for the Jews that stayed, helping the others was one way that they served God. And that's an easy second application for us to make is that just like the Jews here, it's right for us who have not been stirred to do different things to still encourage and strengthen and help and support others that are doing those things. Is that not what we do with and through our missionaries? If we all left for Mexico City to be with Brother Reuben, or if we all left for Aguas Calientes to be with Brother Javier, or if we all went to Van Buren to be with Brother Beto, there wouldn't be anybody here at North Bryant. It'd be lonely pastoring a, a bunch of pews. We all don't have the same burden for those areas that those men do. And I don't mean that we're not burdened for the souls there, but we're not stirred to move there and be there. But that's okay. We can still help those men and strengthen those men and others as well by praying for them by the financial support that we give them, by doing all sorts of other things, visiting them and encouraging them in all of those ways. So don't feel like you're less for God if you're just the helper. I read a book several, several years ago. It was a pretty good book. It was, it was a very challenging book. But one thing I really disagreed with that this author made, the, made you feel like if you... If you did not give up everything you have and go to a foreign mission field, then you really weren't serving God. And I disagree with that. You serve the Lord where you're at. If he stirs you to move, you move. But you serve the Lord where you're at, where he puts you, and don't let someone make you feel guilty that you're not traveling the world for Jesus. Because God doesn't call everyone to distant lands. Again, if we all went to the mission field, we'd have nobody here. You really don't have to leave this country in order to serve God. You probably don't have to leave the county. You probably don't have to leave your family before you find somebody who is lost and who needs Jesus as Savior. And if you're in that situation, you can be the witness for them in that, at that time. Serve God where He puts you if he convicts you to do something that's challenging and great and huge, that's awesome. You do it. Maybe, maybe it is something huge like, you know, returning to Jerusalem for these people. But there's a lot of really good servants of God who don't get the headlines. But they're awesome encouragers. And they're awesome witnesses and they're great supporters. Why did God stir some of their hearts and not all of them? God knows what he's doing. He may stir some and he may keep some where they're at. Believe it or not, there was a story, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when someone wanted to follow him and Jesus said, no, you stay right here. Mark chapter 5 details the story. Jesus cast these demons out of this man. Can you imagine how thrilled this man was to be released from those chains 
and he, he loves Jesus and he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be with him. But this is what Luke wrote. Jesus did not permit him. Jesus did not allow him to travel around with him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Basically, Jesus said, I need you to stay here and be a witness here. And listen to what Luke writes next. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Stay with me when I say this. That man followed Jesus by not following Jesus. He, he obeyed the Lord and served him by not traveling around with him. Jesus had already called his apostles. He needed that man in that region, and that man obeyed, and people were marveling at what the Lord had done for him. In your life, trust the providence of God, and you follow his leadership, and you serve him wherever he puts you, wherever you end up. God wants to use you. No one's going to force you, though, to serve. You've got to make that decision. And while you're serving God personally, and he is always carefully and intimately involved in your life, don't forget that on a global, universal scale, he's still at work, and he's still in control. The sermon focused from the bulletin was God is provident globally and personally. And I want to add that that's not on a sliding scale. He doesn't give you 100%, and that means he has to give less to the world. Or if he's 100% to the world, that means that we get less. God cannot give anyone or anything less than perfect and complete focus. He cannot be distracted. While God was stirring up Cyrus for this universal decree, he was stirring the hearts of these individual people all at the same time. Why would we not, uh, why would we doubt that he's not still doing that today? Sometimes we look sometimes we look around and we feel like this world is unraveling, that it's just out of control. And maybe we would say it is out of control with wickedness and wars and just different things like that. But it's not outside of God's control. He may be working on the heart of an 81-year-old man who was saved because of the gospel that Brother Beto shared with him this week. So let's follow God in our lives. And let's trust that even large-scale decisions that are made by rulers, even if we don't understand everything about them, God is using those to set up the return of Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier in this service that Revelation will be our next sermon uh, series. And, and as, as I've just begun to dig into that, please pray for me. But one of the most obvious uh, first takeaways through reading that and starting to study it is that God is in complete control. 
So be confident in that. And you personally serve him while you wait for your Lord to return. As we close, the most important conviction that God will ever lay on your heart is when he stirs your heart with the gospel. Jesus Christ, God's son, became a man and he came to this earth and he lived perfectly and he died for you. And God raised him back to life the third day to show that he accepted that sacrifice on your behalf and so that we could have life. And if you're here this morning and God's spirit is stirring your heart, convicting you, drawing you, humble yourself and trust Jesus as your savior. Don't put that off. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your providence, your sovereignty. We cannot wrap our minds around how big you are, but help us to trust you personally each day as you bring the events and orchestrate the events of this world to bring our Lord and Savior back. If there's someone here who's lost, Lord, we pray for their salvation and anyone else who needs to make a decision about following you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.